Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Carla McLaren, an award-winning author, educator, social science researcher, empathy expert, and workplace consultant. Her work revalues even the most negative emotions and opens startling new pathways into self-awareness, effective communication, and healthy empathy. Her applied work dynamic emotional integration is a groundbreaking process that reveals the genius and healing power within the emotional realm. And I'm so excited to have her on the show because she is the author of so many books on the emotional world, one of which that I just recently read called The Language of Emotions. And she's also written the book, The Power of Emotions at Work and Embracing Anxiety. So welcome so much to the show, Carla. Thank you so much, Yasmin. It's good to be here. <laughs> oh, I love that you pronounced my name correctly. That's a that's very uh, rare. <laughs> I get points. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so, Carla, I want to just dive right in and talk about the emotional world, and it's a world that I think a lot of us don't really prioritize or understand. And I think, you know, when I was growing up and I imagine for a lot of people growing up, you know, other than the the ones kind of coming of age now, uh, the idea of em- embracing our emotional world and even trying to make sense of them felt very taboo and maybe even suppressed, repressed. And so I just love to dive in and and kind of kick it off. What is the emotional world, and why is understanding our emotions so important? Well, I think first I want to say that if people don't understand their emotions, it's not their fault, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we've all been trained very assiduously not to understand them, not to embrace them. And so that becomes a problem if we have any kind of emotional issue. We sort of are clueless, right? Right. And we might feel ashamed of that. Hey, there's another emotion. But um, um, <laughs> like we don't really have language. We think we should be able to deal with it, especially in a such a strongly gendered culture as ours is. Women are expected to just know emotions and empathy. Like we're born with it, right? And so if women have trouble with emotions and empathy, that's a secret shame, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's like you're not even allowed to not know. But the sad thing about this is that emotions are now understood to be central to cognition, Not, not just that emotions and logic are separate, but that emotions are a fundamental aspect of logic about that that emotions, we can think of emotions as sort of the foundation or the underlayment of everything that makes us human. Emotions underlie thought, um, action, decisions, behavior, who we choose to have in our lives, how we vote, uh, sort of everything we do is is predicated by emotion. And so if we don't understand our emotions, we may be a mystery to ourselves and to others too, you know, right. we, we may not know why we do what we do because we are not connected to the foundation of behavior. Right. Right. So emotions are so important yet. A lot of us don't understand them and don't know what to do with them. And I am curious, you know, why do you think so many people are not interested in navigating their emotions? I mean, you mentioned that it's not their fault, uh, but even even now when I think there's more access and information um, about the world of your emotions, like books like Emotional Intelligence came out, right? And so it's it seems to me that if you are not actively trying to understand your emotional world, there's sort of I don't know, like some sort of missing piece happening in culture where we know that this is important. We know that it leads to so many difficulties and challenges and also incredible experiences in our relationships, in our personal life, in our professional life. Yet, you know, so many people are still not interested or maybe, I don't know, fearful of Mm -hmm. diving into that world. So I'm curious if you know why or can share why. Well, we've been really intentionally chased away from our emotions. And this has been going on for centuries. 
Um, for instance, the seven deadly sins of Catholicism, five of the seven are emotions, just normal human emotions. And so there is um, a, a sort of, a sort of we've, we've certainly been taught to look down on emotions as less important than logic or rationality or spirituality for certain, you know, certainly less important. That, that, that emotions are lower than or more primitive than uh, other ways that we, um, we feel that we are. And so that welcome to, to look at emotions and be fascinated by them is really not there. In, like, and, and we're taught so often, you know, someone can, someone can say, don't be emotional, as if that's even a human possibility. But we know that when we hear that, we're being told emotional is not okay. It's not a valuable way to be. So I think people would think, well, if I'm not, why should I look at that? I'm going to look at things that are going to be you know, more comfortable for me and that people are going to value. Why would I look at something that people don't value? Mm. Fascinating. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. I mean, I think all of us have heard that, like, don't get so emotional, especially maybe women. Um, we we sort of have, I think, been told, um, my anecdotal uh, story is, is, is that in culture, a lot of people don't want uh, emotions in the equation, especially in the professional world. That's what it's felt like for me, at least. Um, Definitely. And, yeah. And I, you know, a point that you make in the book, which I thought was great, is that you talk about restoring the intellect to its rightful position. And mm -hmm. I'd love for you to talk about this because we are such an intellect driven culture and we sort of reward the most intellectual person in the room, even though they might, you know, create the most chaos mm -hmm. um, in our emotional world or they may not be using their emotional world. So I'd love to to talk about that point. Well, there has been a sort of a, a warring faction set up within the within the psyche, which is that the intellect, rationality, or logic are preferential to emotion, and that they are better than, higher than, and more more valued and more wanted. And I grew up in a family of geniuses, and I can tell you from a position of high IQ that I did not. Earn, I just got it, that some of the most dysfunctional people I've ever met in my entire life are geniuses. <laughs> I'm <not> kidding. <laughs> they are so, um, and growing up, one of our jokes in our family was, you know, we would sort of own genius, like we're genius house painter, geniuses, like we would have genius everything, genius shoe wearer. And something that made us laugh uproariously was emotional genius, because we thought, you know, you that's not even a thing. You cannot be an emotional genius. We would just giggle and giggle, emotional <laughs> genius. But that stuck with me. And I thought, what if a person could become an emotional genius? What would that even look like? And so that early, you know, laughter kind of set me on a path of what would that look like to be a genius with emotion? And putting the, the, the intellect in its rightful place, the intellect is brilliant at compare and contrast, at, um, you know, making a... a spreadsheets, you know, doing that, <laughs> that sort of thing. Things that take a calculation and um, uh, a new way of looking at things. And so I thought, well, how could you put that into relationship with the emotions, not a, a one down, you know, power over relationship, but how could you bring genius to the emotions? And that was what I did by using the intellect as a support to emotions, which is very different than what we've learned, which is that intellect is preferential to emotion. And, mm. you know, you're going to want to shut that emotion down and everybody get logical. And, you know, now we're not emotional. So now we're all making sense. And so helping the 
it, the intellect and the emotions begin to communicate with each other in a in a kinder and more um, functional way was was a part of what I did with this work. And I want to double click on one of these points because I think when we do not express our emotions, there's it's not that it just disappears. No. Right. And so I, I'd love for you to talk about like what actually happens when we don't express our emotions or that, or if we're not even aware of our emotions, what happens? One of my favorite definitions of emotions is from Arlie Hochschild, uh, the sociologist, and she calls emotion a sense and perhaps our most important one. Emotions come forward to help us make sense of our environment, uh, internal and external, social and uh, interpersonal uh, and intrapersonal. And so it's a sense. It is as if we see things with emotions, we hear things with emotions. And if we don't pay attention to the emotion, it is as if we are walking through the world with our eyes closed and our ears shut. And we will probably walk into a wall, you know, or, or get clipped by a car because we didn't hear it coming. So if we don't pay attention to our emotions, we are losing access to a basic aspect of our intelligence and our functionality. So for instance, if I become angry, something angers me, and I have no practice for anger, I don't know what it does, um, I'm a woman, so therefore I can never be angry, let's not get emotional. Um, anger comes forward, it's a sense that tells me that a boundary has been crossed or, or, or an agreement has been crossed, something is not right here. So my anger comes to tell me, hey, Carla, this is what I picked up. If I don't know what I'm doing and I just pretend that I was never angry, um, that anger will be disrespected, but also I will be less safe in my social world because now people have seen clearly that if they step over a boundary with me, I won't know what to do. And maybe they'll keep going and my anger will come up again because it happened again, but I still won't have any skills. And eventually I may get into a feedback loop with my anger and I would turn toward my anger and blame it because I've been taught to hate and distrust emotions. But all the anger is doing is saying there's a boundary here. I'm bringing you some energy and strength so you can reset it. Would you like to? It's like people don't even know that's the function of anger because we haven't been allowed to know. Um, and so, you know, boundary issues are humongous for people. And I would say, okay, so let's, let's work with our anger. And people say, oh, no, <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> it's so funny, Carla, because, you know, I, uh, my ethnicity is, is in the Middle Eastern um, world. And mm -hmm. in the Middle East, we don't have a problem. I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of saying that general, generally, yeah. but it seems like we don't have a problem with like expression and um I have been told by a lot of Americans that I have a hyperbolic way of expressing myself. <laughs> I don't get that feedback in the Middle East or like in the Mediterranean kind of countries where it's just culturally accepted to, mm -hmm. to kind of express uh, these emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's interesting because, you know, uh, coming to California, I think there's <laughs> less of a <laughs> California. openness, especially Northern California, yep. uh, which is where I lived for seven years. Um, the the openness to kind of a full expression of anger has felt um, very closed off mm -hmm. in many ways. And and to me, you know, it's there's always been kind of an inquiry, like, is there something wrong with expressing anger or is, is, is everyone just sort of numb to their own anger? And I think it's, it, it is kind of a scary world that we live in if we can't feel anger. I think maybe the, the sort of question is like, how do you deal with your anger in a healthy way without hurting people or offending people? Um, and I think that bar is very different depending on which city you're in, mm -hmm. which culture you're a part of. So it's just, it's very, it's been very fa fascinating for me at least yeah. <laughs> to kind of witness that. Yeah. I, I live in Northern California, grew up here and it is a very funny, seemingly open, but nevertheless toxic positivity culture, you know, it's like, <laughs> Hey, chill out. <laughs> so the shadow of California is anger. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. And, and, you know, I wonder if there's also a correlation with like other, whatever the flip side of that is, right? Like not expressing boundaries and then mm -hmm. feeling 
shame, guilt, depression, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, all the Sadness. all these things. Yeah. Sadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So oh go ahead, Carla. No, I was just gonna say that very very reliable things happen when people don't set boundaries, right? Because boundaries are necessary for your basic functioning. So you're gonna have to set them somehow. And if you have no access to your anger, which is the boundary setting emotion, then one of your other emotions might have to step up, you know, and try to do the job of two emotions and doing the job of anger badly. A lot of women use sadness or happiness to set boundaries, depression. A lot of people use shame to set boundaries. They look and see what everybody else is doing and then they just do that. Like that's mm. their boundaries are externally applied by by not by by listening to themselves and saying, how do I want to be in this situation? But by looking at everybody and going, how do I have to be in order to not make waves in this situation? It's a very different kind of boundary setting. Wow. You know? So it's so you think that expressing anger is better than you know, kind of moving into these other emotions. That's kind of like the hierarchy almost. Well, yeah, I would have to say, you know, the other emotions are sort of, you know, I'll do it, but this is not my skill set. Mm. Sadness has a totally different job. And um, and this and this concept though of expression, for a lot of people, expression of anger includes some form of violence, either either verbal or actual violence. And that is something very fascinating to me because boundaries don't require violence, but many people have many people have their boundary setting behaviors and violence almost inextricably linked. And mm. that fight tendency comes from the emotion of panic. It's one of the one of the panic behaviors, which is fight, flee, freeze, flock to safety, and a couple of other things. But if there's fight in an emotion, that's not panic. I'm always really interested why panic has been brought to the table at this point. Um, because panic arises when your life, when your physical life is literally in danger, right? It's, it's the do or die. And so why does boundary setting bring panic forward? Um, why are we much less safe in the social world than we think we are? Wow. I'm super curious to, and I think it would be also be really helpful for the audience to talk about how to deal with those emotions. And, um, and I, I want to actually talk about your, I think you called it the quaternity. The quaternity, um, yeah. The quaternity in the, in your book, the language, language of emotions, you talk about the quaternity of the psyche and the need for a balanced psyche Mm -hmm. and how we need to incorporate the elements of air, earth, water, and fire, and that so many of us are sort of existing, especially in the Western world, on kind of a half or completely unbalanced psyche. Mm -hmm. I love that section so much, and I think it also sets up the rest of the uh, emotional world, which I'd love to go back and dive into, like other emotions like jealousy and envy and grief and fear and boredom, depression, if we have time, of course, but, but I'd love for you to set up, like, what does it mean to have a balanced psyche? What is the quaternity of of the psyche? I grew up in the first part of my life in a very intellectual family where the intellect or the air element was the most important thing. And of course, emotions were just in the silly realm of ridiculousness. Um, then we moved into a kind of a spiritual viewpoint, um, we moved into the spiritual community and their spirituality or the fire element was the highest thing. Intellect was pretty much looked down on and the emotions were just in the trash. <laughs> they were just so bad. What I noticed in both of these communities is that trying to put one of the elements, fire or air, on top of the others created predictable imbalances in the community and in each individual person where that artificial hierarchy created a lack of wholeness in the person. And I was focused so much on emotions at the time because they were always left out, right? Um, One of my favorite groups, um, oh, what is it? Body, mind, and spirit. 
That's body, earth, mind, air, spirit, fire. There's literally no water in there. There's no emotions. One of my favorite groups, earth, wind, and fire. It's like, dudes, where's the water? (laughs) So we just leave the water out. So I really threw myself into the emotional realm. But what I realized is that some people have emotions first, and that is just as imbalanced and troubling as having anything first. So I began to understand that all four elements have to be equalized within the psyche. And of course, your equalization is going to change every day. Someday it's a more physical day. Someday it's a more intellectual day, right? But each of the elements needed to have its freedom and to be trusted to do what it could do well. Um, And then when they were all together, what I realized is that something new grew out of the middle, which I call the nature element, where when you have full access to your emotions, your intellect, your spirituality or your vision and your body and the physical world, something new arises within you, a whole being. And so that was my, my understanding of that when you could get all four together, you could be someone new. Um, you could have a whole and complete life, even though it's not going to be perfect. (laughs) You're still going to just be in a crappy mood or, you know, just not know what you're doing, but from a place of wholeness and, and balance between these elements, instead of having them fight with each other. Right. And I think this point to me was so important because I think, so I've researched, you know, hundreds of different modalities and, Uh, you know, this is something you talk about in your book about how a lot of modalities sort of take you out of your body. We focus like entirely on the fire element or entirely on like kind of becoming disembodied and disassociative uh, to sort of um, move away from, from your physical reality to access whatever it is, creativity, inspiration, but it sort of does it in a way that actually can traumatize people even further. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such an interesting and important point because I do think, I mean, I do think there's a lot of things out there and and I think a lot of things are incredibly helpful, of course, like a lot of the folks on our show. Um, But but again, I do want to double click on that point that um, for folks who are already disembodied or already kind of, I call them floaters, mm-hmm. where you look in their eyes and they're just not there. Um, yeah, they're visitors, you know? like visitors. they're tourists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like the human shell is walking around, but I don't know who's inside. Nobody's what, home. What's going on? What's going on? And um, and yeah, and I think that to me is so interesting because I think when people get pulled farther and farther away from the present moment, it's it's just actually can can be terrifying. So I, I really appreciated that point in your book and I'd love for you to, to talk about it further. Yeah. So much of what we do is dissociative. Uh, and what are we trying to dissociate away from? It starts with an E and it ends with emotions. <laughs> Generally, we're trying to escape the emotions. Sometimes we're trying to escape the physical world or physical pain, but pain is really just pain, you know, it is our emotional response to pain that because we don't, we haven't been welcomed into the realm of emotions, we haven't learned our skills or practices, we don't have our tools for emotions. If the pain comes forward, and our emotions want to tell us something about it, we have no ears to listen, and it just feels like more pain. So we leave, we, we binge, Netflix, we eat when we're not hungry, or we drink, or we gamble, or we um, uh, we do anything to distract ourselves from emotions. And for me, I just look at it as such a sort of with grief. It's just so tragic because the emotions are there to bring so much beauty and intelligence to us. Um, But the way that we've learned to approach them and treat them separates us from a basic aspect of our humanity and from, as Arlie Oakshield says, our most important sense. Um, You know, what I talk about, I don't think I talk about it in the book, but I'm, I'm looking at what I call the fundamental attribution error of emotion, which is, there's two of them. One is people notice that when there's, 
trouble, there's always some damn emotions there, right? And so they're like, we hate emotions. They're terrible. But what I've noticed is that emotions aren't, don't bring the trouble. They are responding to the trouble and they bring you the exact skills you need to deal with the trouble. So the bigger the trouble, the more emotions I want. Like everybody come on because <laughs> I need your help. All right. So that's the first attribution error is that people confuse the trouble with the emotion that comes to help with the trouble. The second is we all know people who are just terrible with emotions. We have been hurt by people who've been in the throes of an emotion that they have no practice for and no idea how to work with, right? We've all been injured by people's anger or by people's panic or, or their weird behavior when they feel anxious or when they're depressed. Um, so we attribute the problem to the emotions when the problem is actually with the people's skills. It would be like saying, um, we don't ever want fire because fire can burn you. And I was like, well, that's mm. one of the things it does. <laughs> There's like, we don't want jump ropes because a five-year-old hit me with a jump rope once. Um, mm. It's like people don't understand that emotions are tools. And the, the capacity, the skill that people have with their emotional tools is a separate from the tool itself. Wow. So Carla, I want to dive into some of these dominant emotions and maybe we can um, do like some exercises or I don't know if it's, if it's helpful for our audience to like go through a scenario. Uh, and I think maybe if we were to pick just a couple, um, guilt, shame, and fear, because I think those to me feel like pretty powerful uh, resonances kind of throughout our culture, especially in like the last year and a half with the pandemic. Um, yeah. So what would you do if if you noticed that someone had a lot of guilt and shame and didn't know how to break free from that? Yeah. that's A lot of people have just tremendous trouble with working with uh, guilt and shame. And I mush them together as shame. Uh, for many people, there's a distinction. The idea is that guilt is easier to work with because it is about something you've done. So I did not pick you up from work and I feel guilty about that. The concept within that is that shame is not livable because it's about something you are. So I don't pick you up at work for 90 days in a row, which means I'm a jerk, right? I'm just <laughs> a jerk and a loser. And so the idea is that I can't function if I see myself as somebody wrong. I don't agree with that. And I think that's a very white upper middle class lady idea. <laughs> I really <laughs> do. Um, because... Um, there are many uh, people who have become something just terrible and they have survived it and they have been able to come out of it. And those are stories of redemption and, and the evolution of the human soul. So it is livable and it is um, worthwhile to feel shame about something that you've become. It's okay to do that. The problem is shame is an emotion that tells you, you are out of true. You are out of agreement with what your ethic and, uh, ethics and your moral structure are. You have just misbehaved and you need to cut that out, right? Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. We're all like, no, I'm perfect at all times. Um, here, look, it's on my affirmation board. Um, but... but that movement into, yes, I have become something I do not agree with and I actually abhor. Now, what do I do? Right? Most of us don't even know how to even start that sentence running. Um, another issue with shame is that it responds to the agreements you've made. And if your shame is painful, it is likely because you're either so far out of true and you know it and yeah, you probably need to get your act together or the agreement you made was painful and unlivable and inhumane. And shame is simply acting to hold you to, to, hold you to your agreements. And so the 
work with shame is to figure out what your agreements are. And I make a very simple analogy. One of the things that I've told my shame that this is an agreement for me is I want to floss. (laughs) I want to (laughs) floss every day. And that is a livable agreement. And if I don't floss, my shame, you know, and I'll go get into bed. My shame will go, did you floss? And I went, dang it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go floss. I forgot. But what if my agreement is no one will ever love you until you're perfect? And I don't know where I picked mm. that up. Probably from women's magazines or something, right? Yeah. And so some poor schmuck comes to love me. And my shame is going to go on a freaking bender. My shame is going to go cattywampus and it will be painful and it'll be horrifying and it will be confusing until I track back to that toxic message that I picked up somewhere and we use a practice called burning contracts to get that out of there and find new contracts like flossing that my shame and I can agree on and that are made by me consciously it's not some weird thing I picked up like you know trash on the street it's something I've chosen And that's such an amazing part of individuation. Uh, If you just listen to your shame messages that are painful and then figure out why are they painful? Is it because I have misbehaved in a way that I agree that I've misbehaved? Or is it because the agreement that I picked up is toxic and unlivable? Mm, That's so powerful. Wow. And I love the idea of burning contracts. And so you would like literally just take kind of this old program and like burn it, kind of visualize it and replace it with um, a a more powerful uh, thought, essentially. Or you just get rid of it. And one of the reasons I use, I use lots of imaginal practices because the emotions understand language, but they live underneath language and they understand art and um, intention and movement and flow and and representation and I- imagination uh, in a very clear way. So I use a lot of imaginative and um, um, mind meditative practices that help the emotions understand what's happening. So if I say to myself, "I don't want to believe that anymore," that I don't, that's not going to move much, but if I actually, you know, put something out on a piece of paper and I burn it either in the real world or in my imagination, all my emotions go, Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. I see what that, okay. I see that happening. And the next time I head toward that behavior, something in my psyche will be awake and go start to shake a little bit and go, this is not feeling what's going on here. Like some part of me will be awakened because I've worked in the, in the language that emotions understand. Mm, I love that. So, and people can check out your book to learn more about this practice. It's the language of emotions uh, for those of you who didn't get it the first time. And Carla, I actually want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the rites of passage and initiation um, in this chapter that you call unintentional shamanism. I just, I thought that was so powerful because I don't think we, at least in modern society, sort of think of our life as rites of passage. I mean, of course, like there's, you know, puberty, which still doesn't ever feel like a true rite of passage for most of us. And then um, marriage, right? You know, these kind of like, I'd say one, one or two times in our life, we probably have some kind of ceremony and celebration for the mainstream. But I love the idea that like kind of everything is an initiation in many ways. Um, So I would love for you to just talk about this point that you make in the book. I learned this piece about initiation from the mythologist Michael Mead. And he said that initiation has three stages. One is the separation from the known world, where if you think about ceremonies and rituals that you've been in, you know, you cross the threshold or you put your hands in the water, or you take off your shoes to enter the house, or you lean over and you go through the doorway, you know, something like that. You're, you're leaving the regular world, the known world. The second stage is an ordeal. And the ordeal uh, may be for um, a, a Jewish child reading the Torah in front of the, con- you know, not congregation, in front of the temple. 
Um, that's an ordeal. It's hard. Um, and then the third stage is being witnessed and welcomed back as a different person. Um, you can see that in marriages, in, in weddings, in, in many cultures, there's a walk uh, either around uh, like a chalice or there's a walk toward the altar. So they're leaving the known world. They're making this transition. And then at the end, everyone claps or, you know, they say, now this is Mr. and Mrs. Whomever, or, or this is the new couple. Um, so we have so many ceremonies and traditions that follow that initiatory three-part process. And Michael made the point that childhood abuse or childhood sexual assault or physical or emotional assault is an initiation. And I loved what he said. It is an initiation done in the wrong way at the wrong time on the wrong person for the wrong reasons, but it is an initiation. And that sort of opened my whole psyche to what my next steps were in healing. Because one of the rules in the psyche is that if witnessing does not occur, you have to go back to the first. You, you begin to cycle in the initiation. So there can be unfinished ritual. And I realized that I needed to be witnessed out of the, the despair of my early life. And that was where the four element into the five element practice came from as well. I, I needed to witness myself. And uh, you can also be witnessed by others, of course. But it has helped me so much to understand, oh, this is a ritual. Okay, this is initiation. You haven't been witnessed yet. And so I tend to just go through life witnessing everybody. <laughs> I like love that. Three lines, no waiting. What do you got? And you can only truly witness someone when you're an elder in the tribe or when you are a community member. So I have lots and lots of traumas. And so my job is to make sure that I get to the third stage so that I can welcome the other people, right? It becomes like a like an inner... Um, um, contest with me i was like what other trauma do i have okay <laughs> I quickly, I quickly be available to witness people um because i think that's one of the most powerful witnessing you can get is someone you know someone who's a little bit further along in the process than you who looks at you and says you know thumbs up you got this mm. and that's sometimes all it needs to be i love that's because i think so many of us um at least I grew up in the Midwest and I think for a lot of people in my circle, uh, it didn't seem like people could talk to kind of that mentor or a therapist outside of the house just to kind of um, go into these more difficult but important conversations, right? Um, especially if if there was any kind of point of view in the household um, that held, I mean, you know, I'm just also saying this kind of generally, but if there was like, a lot of religious orthodoxy or um, a point of view that, uh, you know, you had, the construct of the world had to be a certain way. And if you didn't fit into that construct, then, you know, you were not really doing the right thing. Right. And so just having that one person, a mentor, therapist, I think is that witnessing for maybe for the first time for many people. And I think, um, you know, that, I think is just a powerful practice of just feeling witness. I can just also share that growing up Iraqi American um, during, I was like eight years old during the first Gulf War uh, was such a traumatic experience um, for me because I didn't know really what was happening um, between my, the country that I was born to and the country that my, where my parents were from. And I kind of realized that as I read that section in your book, that up until now, um, I've put together a 10-part miniseries about that experience, uh, which is coming out soon. Um, but up until now, I don't really feel like I have been witnessed in that kind of um, part of my life. I know the experience of like feeling so caught between two worlds and not really feeling like you fit in, um, in, a, in both circles. Right. So mm -hmm. it was, yeah, it was just a, a powerful exercise. I think for everyone, you know, they can welcome these, I guess, parts of themselves and witness these parts of themselves that, that they haven't 
had like a celebration or some kind of ceremony. It doesn't have to be, I guess, a celebration, but maybe it's a ceremony, a ceremonial kind of um, coming to terms with mm -hmm. your experience. Yeah, and and to close to close things out, um, I love the mini series. It feels like a self witnessing, <laughs> right? To yeah. tell the story, to tell the story is a way to witness yourself. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah, I think the most important part was just writing it, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, telling myself that story and moving on. Um, and I think a lot of people who've dealt with trauma don't actually want to revisit trauma or don't want to revisit the uncomfortable feelings, but it is such a release when we do. Um, so that's that's been interesting. Um, so Carla, I wanted to talk about what has surprised you the most since you've been doing this work and how has your point of view evolved over time uh, when it comes to the world of the emotions? I think I knew there was gold in the emotions, but the more I do this work, the more I find out it's like a bottomless well of fantasticness. That's not a word. <laughs> it is now. Because <laughs> really, <laughs> who makes up language but humans? <laughs> but um, just getting deeper and deeper into the emotions. Um, and th this year, I'm having the opportunity to update the language of emotions, which is wonderful because I wrote it uh, 12 years ago. And I've learned so much since then. Um, so much. And I've come to trust the emotions so completely uh, that I, you know, they 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 tell me everything. And a lot of times, like here's something that just happened last month. I was looking at um, a new, um, like an online program for creating community. And so we did all of our research and we chose one and we, you know, paid for it. And I got in there and we were starting to work on it. And I kept having. <laughs> severe depression and even suicidal mm. urges come up. And I'm like, mm. what is happening? <laughs> it's like, do I need to fire myself from this project? Cause I'm like a dark cloud. And as it turned <laughs> out, depression comes forward when things aren't working and they can't work. And so depression will pull your energy away. This is situational depression. It's not, you know, postpartum depression or, or bipolar, but, it pulls your energy away so that you cannot move forward doing the wrong thing with the wrong intention for the wrong reason, right? So I understood that the suicidal urge comes forward when the difference between who you are and who you have become is extreme and irredeemable, and only a death will fix it. And the rule in DEI or dynamic emotional integration, which is my applied work, is your human body is off the table you know, death will come in its own time. Your human body is off the table. So look at with this power that the suicidal urge brings you, look and ask, what is unlivable in my life? What needs to go and never come back? And so I was having these two intense emotions about some stupid community platform, right? I was like, this is, this is really weird. But as we got more into it, we realized it was a completely dysfunctional platform that mm. would have not only slowed us down, but stopped us from being able to create the community we dream of. And community is everything. So it was really nice to go, oh, my emotions knew way more than I did. Way more. <laughs> they were like, they saw that platform and they went, oh, hell no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, so Carla, I, I want to actually talk about this because it's so fascinating to me because I think a lot of people feel that way about work. <laughs> like 95% of the world, They're not right? Wrong. It's like, <laughs> you know, like there's just such a like, oh, like I think, I think a lot of people who it's, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I, do, I think a lot of people who are thriving, um, you know, in their work, I think either they're at some sort of leadership or have an autonomous kind of perspective, or they're just really good at convincing themselves. Um, you know, but, but I do think like deep down, I, I just have never really heard anyone say that they love what they do. Um, at, at most of the corporate jobs, let's put it that way, less than the entrepreneurial world, but 
<laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, the workplace as an entity has let us down so completely. And in The Power of Emotions at Work, which is my most recent book, I talk about one of the rules in the workplace is uh, we don't have emotions here. And so what that means is we don't have a human environment that is livable here. And it is no surprise that people get to work. You know, we've seen the great resignation this year and last where people are like, I would rather stay home and never go to work again. And in fact, that's what I'm going to do. Um, People have been leaving the workplace in droves. Uh, And, you know, this horrifying pandemic has changed so much, but it's also daylighted so much that was hidden from us, especially about the workplace and what our value is to our employer, which has been a very depressing thing to learn. And so I haven't read your book, The Power of Emotions at Work, but I imagine that, you know, it follows kind of the thesis of this. And I'm wondering like what sort of kind of big takeaway have you found from that, that work? And I, you know, I'm wondering like, what are the emotions that we need at work? Especially if like, let's say you get these feelings that you're kind of being sucked <laughs> into the wrong direction. Because <laughs> um, I think that's very applicable for a lot of people who let's say can't afford to do the resignation and have to provide for their families. Um, Cause I, yeah, I'm, and I think we're all sort of trying to figure out this next step of like what the era and the future and the next, you know, you know, future of work is going to look like, because I don't think it's sustainable right now, like treating humans like machines and it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, but yeah, it sort of feels like what's the answer. Uh, we could create environments where emotions are welcome. I think that absolutely needs to happen. But how, how does that happen when our society hasn't even done that in their personal life? I know. The workplace is like the <laughs> micro macrocosm of the problem, right? Schools are too, but the workplace, we spend more time there than we do in school in generally, hopefully. And so what I'm looking at is by, by removing the emotions artificially, we've created an artificial environment that it cannot be life-sustaining. So the answer is to rehumanize the workplace. And it's not, you know, there's not bells and whistles in this book. It's sort of like, can people be physically comfortable? Do they have a process through which to work through difficulties and conflicts that they all know about and that they've agreed on and is reliable? The answer is no. No, they don't. People don't even know how. I call the workplace unintentional community because people don't even have basic rules for how to treat each other. Um, Whenever I go in and consult in the workplace, I ask like, does your workplace community have a reliable known process for interrupting a busy person? I'm just like, uh, (laughs) crickets. Like, like, does your workplace have a reliable known process for how to tell you when I, your worker, have made a mistake? Uh, like things that happen every day, right. interrupting a busy person. And I mean, do you know how much work, unnecessary workplace conflict happens over interrupting a busy person? <laughs> I mean, does anybody know if it's more important to send an email or a text? Right. And they're like, uh, it's everything in the workplace has been left to chance. You know, every, every important social, social, process of how people get along has been left absolutely to chance. And so the workplace is just a minefield. Wow. Oh my gosh. I completely agree with you. Uh, times a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's stuff like a child could go into a workplace and go, well, duh, like they don't even have a place to sit down and take a break. How can you even work here? Right. The children bring children into every workplace. And if they think it's okay, probably you're doing pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's actually a really great uh, test. Wow. <laughs> Oh my gosh. The seven-year-old test. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it's so true. I mean, I, I think that it, it's, you know, it's not sustainable right now. And especially with remote work, I mean, people are just on 10 to 12 Zoom calls a day and oh. it's just back to back to back. And it's, there's a it's wonderful, re- m- m- what is it? Meme I saw saying, I have this, um, 
this terrifying sense of impending zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is so, so funny. Oh my gosh. I have to find that mean. That's hilarious. (laughs) Unbending Zoom or Zoom exhaustion. Zoom exhaustion. Yeah. So, uh, Carla, I have so many questions for you. I think you're fascinating. And I think the work that you've been doing is not only fascinating, but incredibly important right now. Um, We have just one or two more questions left and sadly are at time. But I also just want to give a shout out again, The Language of Emotions. It's been a fantastic book. So please check it out. And Carla, what other books uh, would you recommend folks checking out? And also what other books besides your own have inspired you on this path? Like what would you recommend to our audience? A beautiful book by Arleigh Hochschild, whose um, definition of emotions I shared earlier is called The Managed Heart. And it is about the concept of emotional labor and emotion work. And this is the most, this is the work you do in the workplace that is unpaid, unacknowledged, and unsupported. And it is one of the things that makes the workplace unlivable. So The Managed Heart is, you've got to read it. It's beautiful. Um, it's a research book, but she's a beautiful writer. So it doesn't feel like, you know, research. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I also love the book Meeting the Shadow. Um, Shadow work is a specific work for the emotion of hatred. And if you don't know how to do shadow work, you are going to be like a Um, you know, like a, like a loaded gun with your hatred. If you know how to do your shadow work, you can, you can evolve by leaps and bounds in a single afternoon. It is just some of the most amazing work in the world. Wow. Amazing. And where can people find you if they want to work with you? Um, And then obviously your books are on Amazon and searchable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm at CarlaMcLaren.com and there's lots of free stuff on my site because I saw, you know, you can find out what what search terms people are using to get to your site. I found um, a number of years ago that people were like, I can't go on anymore. My emotions are out of control. How do I survive? And I was like, shit. So I started putting all sorts of resources on my site because Google was sending people to me, right? Um, so the site has so much free stuff. If you just want to go lose yourself in, uh, in information about emotions. And then I also have an online learning site called empathyacademy.org where we have courses every month on individual emotions or all 17 emotions or empathy or movement. And, uh, that's a fun place to be. Wow. Amazing. Um, We'll leave those in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. And Carla, what is your main takeaway that you want to tell our audience about their wealth, uh, not their wealth, (laughs) about their, well, maybe their wealth, um, about their health and wellness and well-being? That wholeness is messy, but necessary, and it includes and embraces the emotions. Mm. Amen. Thank you so much for your time, Carla. This was so enlightening. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the emotional world with Carla McLaren. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.